Salvation Now podcast, where you'll discover and be equipped with keys from the Word of God that will pave the way to God's unlimited blessing in your life. Now, here's your host, Evangelist TJ Malkanji. Five facts about Jesus that are oftentimes overlooked. Five facts that you may not have known about Jesus. Now, before I get into it, I want to read a scripture out of Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, comes into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But Jesus turned to them and said, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said, Blessed are you, uh, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It is important to have an accurate knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. In his power, in his nature, in his character, and in his will. As to how he's revealed himself from the scripture. It is imperative because the the problem is, if you don't pull a picture of Jesus from the scriptures, you're going to conceive and you're going to fashion in your own mind this different version, or like Paul says to the Galatians, another Jesus whom I've not preached to you. Let's turn to actually Ephesians chapter 4. Listen to this. Paul's letter to the, to the Ephesian church, he gives them a little warning here. In verse 20, he says, chapter 4, verse 20 of the Ephesian letter, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus But you have not so learned Christ. So there's essentially Paul is drawing a line in the sand of two different types of people that were in the Ephesian church. And in the Ephesian area, there were people who had learned about a version of Christ, but it wasn't necessarily the accurate Christ of the Gospels. And Paul says, but you've not learned Christ that way. There's a lot of opinions about who Jesus was and is. There's a lot of different concepts of Jesus. There's a lot of different world, uh, world perspectives of Jesus. If you go to the Muslim faith, they believe Jesus was a prophet, a teacher, uh, a, a good man that taught great principles of uh, godly living. But essentially, he wasn't what Peter described him to be in that scripture we just read in Matthew 16, the son of the living God. So they had a level of understanding of Jesus. He was a prophet, and Jesus truly was a prophet. He was a teacher. Jesus truly was a teacher. They called him rabbi, which means means teacher. But he was much more than just a prophet and much more than just a teacher. Peter said, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, Peter, which shows you that you can have people that read the Bible But don't actually carry a true depiction of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of theologians who read the Bible and maybe have even given their lives to the study of Scripture that may not even be saved. Because just 
having the ability to read does not mean you're going to understand everything the Bible says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Bible says that the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. What is Paul saying? Just having the ability to read and having a, a level of English sufficient to have an understanding of theological concepts does not necessarily mean that you're going to carry uh, you're going to carry an accurate depiction or an accurate image of the God of the Bible. There has to be something called a revelation of the Spirit that happens to you for you to have in sincerity and in truth the image of Christ branded on your heart where you start to live in the reality of who, who Jesus truly is as revealed from the Bible. Remember Jesus said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Hallelujah. That's my prayer as we go through these five facts about Jesus that you may have overlooked, that God is by the Spirit going to sear this into your spirit, sear this into your mind. Where you leave this broadcast knowing Jesus better. Where you leave this broadcast today seeing Jesus as he really is. Seeing Jesus, not as a North American version of Jesus. Not as this culturally acceptable version of Jesus. But who he really is. That Jewish Middle Eastern man of the Bible that walked the earth in the years some say 4 to 6 BC he was born and lived 33 years in the first century AD. Died, rose again, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And here's why we can read what he was like in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and still believe him to be like that today in 2023. Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, today. And forevermore. I want you to write that in the comment section. Riley, Angie, uh, Debbie, Yelly. Write that in the comment section. Jesus never changes. Jesus never changes. The reason why we can have a confident understanding that God is who he's revealed himself to be from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is because there's a theological word we attribute to God and it's called immutability. He's immutable. He can't change. He's not open to modification. He's not open to reinterpretation. He's not changing with the times. That's what irritates me, is you have a lot of uh, ministers that try to make Jesus popular, and we're going to get into one of the points, or one of the facts about Jesus some people don't know, is that Jesus never did anything to be popular. Jesus never said anything to become popular, to get on people's good sides, or to brand himself in a way that made him uh, likable in his generation. Jesus said what he meant, and he meant what he said. Jesus was who, who he was, and it didn't matter whether people clapped when he spoke or whether people picked up stones to stone him when he spoke. He never changed who he was to adapt to the current climate of society that he lived in. He always stuck to truth, and truth is timeless. Not only did he stick to truth, he is the way. 
He is truth in flesh, and he is the life. So let's get in it very quickly. Five facts about Jesus that you may have overlooked. Number one, and I love this one. That's why I'm starting with it. Number one fact about Jesus that a lot of people overlook, a lot of people uh, may not even know about, is that Jesus was a joy bomb. Hallelujah. Write that in the comment section. Jesus was a joy bomb. What do I mean by that? There's a lot of times uh, in a lot of churches, they have pictures of, of Jesus hanging on the walls. You go into some pastor's office and they have a picture of Jesus and it's him on the cross or it's even just him interacting with people and he always has that very sour look on his face. He always has this look on his face like he was a miserable human being that constantly was irritated by his surrounding, that he was like over it. He has this look on his face where he's just over it. He's over people and uh, he was just ticked off that he came as God and everyone was just these underlings under him that uh, he tolerated. And it shows by the, the depiction that they have when they paint these pictures of Jesus historically, very rarely do you see an image of Jesus where he was happy. And that's not the picture that, we, that the gospel paints of Jesus Christ. Remember in Psalm 1611, which I have to make this very clear, Jesus was not a lesser form of God. Jesus is not a step down from God. The Bible says in Philippians 2 that Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, which shows that Paul understood Jesus to be equal with God. Jesus turned to his disciples, Philip in particular, and said, Have I not been with you long enough, Philip? Whoever sees me has seen the Father. When you see Jesus, you see God. The Bible says that Jesus laid aside his divine glory and took on the form of a man. He came in the appearance of human flesh. But Jesus was God in flesh. Jesus did not come into existence in Matthew 1. Jesus was not finally born into reality in Matthew 1. Jesus is declared to be, in the book of Revelation, the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and he is the end. He was there at the creation of the world. Matter of fact, Paul describes him to be the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the earth. Jesus is a member of the divine trinity, but he is not lesser than. Understanding the trinity. Now I'm going to give you a very brief, very brief description of what the trinity is. The trinity is not, there's the Father who has the most power, Jesus who has some power, and the Holy Ghost who has a little power, but he still has some of it. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are triune and co-equal in power. Co-equal in their nature. Co-equal in wisdom and co-equal in their eternality. Meaning none of them had a beginning and none of them will have an end. The Bible says they are triune. There's a holy trinity. What does that mean? 
Because there are three distinct persons, but they are triune. What does that mean? Well, the Bible gives us an amazing image of this in marriage. My wife and I are two separate personalities, two separate entities, but we are one in that the Bible says, he that has been joined to his spouse has become one. Eshad is the Hebrew word. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Bible talks about the Eshad, which is the Hebrew uh, slogan, if you would, of God. Behold, the Lord, He is one. The Lord, your God, He is one. That is the word Eshad. Now, there's two words for oneness in the Hebrew. There is one word, I forget what it is off the top of my head, I don't know what it is, but there's one word that describes something to be one in that it is a singular unit. This is one iPhone. This is one Bible. This is one microphone. It is a singular unit. But the word Eshad, which is used in Deuteronomy 6.4 to describe God, the Lord your God, the Lord, He is Eshad, is, um, it's like almost like a plural, pluralistic oneness. So it is one in unity, but it is comprised of separate entities. And that's what the Holy Spirit and God the Father and Jesus the Son is. They are one in power and one in unity, but they are distinct persons. Hallelujah. And so when, we re when I'm about to read certain scriptures about God in the Old Testament, we have to understand that the same things attributed to the Father, though they have different roles, the Father didn't die on the cross for us. Jesus died on the cross for us. The Holy Spirit didn't die on the cross for us. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus up from the dead. The Bible says he was raised, declared to be the Son of God by the Spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, through the resurrection of the dead, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. So we know that the Holy Spirit was involved in the gospel coming to pass in that the Holy Spirit not only empowered Jesus through his earthly ministry, but the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And then God sent the Holy Spirit when Jesus prayed the Father. And in Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit inhabiting the body of Christ, which is his church. But we have three different persons with three different roles. The Father was heavily involved with creation, and the Father was heavily involved throughout the Old Testament. Jesus the Son comes and fulfills His role in the New Testament era in that He came to live amongst men, to show us the way, the truth, the life, and then die a sinner's death and be raised up incorruptible now. He is the firstborn from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, the Holy Spirit, is involved at creation. The Holy Spirit came upon certain people in the Old Testament, and the Holy Spirit certainly empowered Jesus and raised Jesus from the dead and continues to live through His body on the earth, empowering men and women created now in Christ Jesus to fulfill the divine assignments over their life. I'm filled with the Holy Ghost. You're filled with the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit is involved at your salvation. You can't be saved without the regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So we see they have different roles, but they're triune in power, tri uh, triune in, in agenda, sorry, triune in their mission, triune in their, their plans for redemption in mankind. However, like I said before, you go back to the Old Testament, everything that you read about God the Father, you can attribute to the Son. Everything you read about God's power, you can attribute to the power uh, that Jesus the Son has. 
Why am I saying this? Because if you read in Psalm 1611, we're going to read something about God, but it's equally applicable to Jesus, how he operated on the earth and how he is now. I think some people think Jesus, going back to point number one of facts you didn't know about Jesus, Jesus is a joy bomb. I think some people have this idea of Jesus that he's on the throne and he's sad. I heard one minister say he had a vision of Jesus. Get this, this is crazy. He said he had a vision of Jesus. And Jesus walked in to his office where he was sitting and studying the Bible. And Jesus was looking down and discouraged. And he said, hey, brother so-and-so, uh, I'm, I'm a little discouraged today. Do you think you can encourage me and cheer me up? And he said, Jesus just walked and he lied on my lap and I held him in my arms and he was lying on my bosom and I just started to crack jokes and encourage him and tell him everything's going to be all right and Jesus turned his frown upside down. He got happy again and then he got up about an hour later and he said, you know what, thank you, brother so-and-so. You really cheered me up. You really encouraged me. Thank you for doing it. I know I can trust in you for that. Are you kidding me? Are, it, I couldn't even believe it when I heard that. Jesus is not looking to be encouraged. Jesus is the encourager. Jesus is not looking to have burdens lay off his shoulders. Jesus is the burden bearer. Jesus is not looking for peace and joy. The Bible says Christ came as prince of peace. And the Bible says that the kingdom of heaven is not meat and joy, drink. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Jesus is, not only does he not need joy, he is joy. And where he shows up, he explodes like a joy bomb. And he turns the sorrows of people into great shouts of joy. Psalm 1611, the Bible says, You will show me the path of life in your presence. In the presence of Jesus is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus is the joy of the Holy Ghost in flesh. The Bible says, when Jesus was talking to his disciples, he told them, I am speaking these things to you. I come to you and these things I speak to you that you may have my joy made full in you. Jesus is the fullness of the joy in heaven all in one. When he showed up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he always turned funerals into parties. He shows up to Jairus' daughter's uh, funeral and he raised her from the dead. And everyone that was hired to weep and sorrow and wail and complain immediately had their tears dried up. Jesus in the book of Luke, I believe it's in chapter 7, he finds a woman, the widow of Nain, that's burying her only son. It was the last thing she ever had that was of prized possession to her on planet Earth. And Jesus shows up as he sees her take the procession going on and the city gates were open and they were carrying the casket, open casket, to his final place of burial. Jesus sees her weeping and he goes to her and says, weep not. Tears are the devil's trophies. And Jesus was a master at drying up the tears of men caused by the sorrows produced by the devil. 
and then turning their weeping into shouts of joy. That's what we read in the book of Psalms. He turns our weeping, hallelujah. He turns our weeping into dancing, our mourning into dancing, and our sackcloth of sorrow, he turns to shouts of joy. Weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Let me read a scripture that resonated with my spirit this week when I was reading it. In the book of Luke, chapter 10, verse 21. Luke, chapter 10, verse 21. The disciples return from ministry and they report to Jesus that demons are subject to us in your name. We had an awesome time on the road ministering to people. Isn't that awesome? You don't see the, the, the apostles of Christ coming back and saying, Jesus, ministry is horrible. I hate this. Ministry is tough. Ministry is burdensome. I, I don't know who in their right mind would sign up to this work. This is a death sentence. They didn't return like that. They returned saying what? Hey, this thing's awesome. We use the same power that we've seen you operate in to cast out our own, like demons out of people. We saw, we saw people that were sick unto death get healed. We saw people that were uh, lepers getting their bodies cleansed. Truly, what you sent us out to do, you gave us power to do it. Ministries of joy. They came back with great joy, the Bible says. And when they reported to Jesus all that they had done, Jesus sat them down and said, hey, ministry's a serious thing. This is church. You don't smile in church. You don't crack. There should be no upward lip angle that would suggest you're happy. In church, this is a somber place. Wipe that smile off your face or I'm going to give you something to cry about. You don't see that. They come back to Jesus. They report the great things that they accomplished by the power of God. And in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, it seemed good in your sight. I did a little Greek word study on the word rejoice there. And if you study the, re the word in the Greek for rejoice, that Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. So it wasn't even just a natural joy that Jesus rejoiced in. It was a Holy Ghost-inspired joy. It was a Holy Ghost-infused joy. Some of you might be watching me right now, and you feel like your joy tank has been depleted. You feel like there's nothing to rejoice about. Let me tell you, the same joy of the Lord that came on Paul, that while he was in a prison cell, right into the Philippian church, you don't hear him talking about how he was flogged a couple of days ago and keep him in prayer because my back is still hurting. Keep me in prayer because the cuts are not healing right. I'm starting to get infection. You don't hear him talk about his misery. You don't hear him talk about his suffering. What do you hear him talk about? Hey, Philippian church, let me tell you something. My sufferings are actually going to result in a great advancement of the gospel. So rejoice. And again, I say rejoice because the Lord is going to turn my deliverance. He's going to turn my situation for deliverance. He kept on encouraging the Philippians to rejoice. Many times, take a highlighter when you read the book of Philippians next and highlight every time you see the word joy or rejoice. It's littered all over that book. Rejoice. 
and you fulfill my joy in being one like-minded towards one another. Paul wasn't talking about the horror stories of ministry. Paul kept on reflecting about how he had a source of joy that was welling up on the inside, a joy the world didn't give him, the joy the world or the devil didn't provide for him, and so the devil couldn't take from him. He remembered Psalm 46, there's a river that makes glad the city of our God. There's a river of joy. Jesus said in John 7, 37, he said, come to me all that are thirsty for out of your belly, as the scripture says, they that believe on me out of their belly shall flow rivers of living water. Not just a river. It's not just talking about salvation. It's not just talking about power. Rivers, multiple streams. And one of the streams of the river of living water that God has for his church, that has for you today, is the river of joy that makes glad the city of our God. I'm telling you, in the name of Jesus, whatever the devil's done to you, to to sap you of joy, to ridden you of joy. That river is welling up in your spirit. That wellspring of overflowing joy is welling up in your spirit today. And you are going to laugh last. The devil might have had the first laugh, but you're going to laugh last. Because when the Lord brings the captives back to Zion, the Bible says he fills our mouths with laughter and he fills our tongue with joyful singing. You shall laugh again in Jesus' mighty name. The joy of the Lord shall be your strength once more. I see the oil of gladness being poured out over your head today in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. God's not just going to give you a superficial happiness where you learn how to smile while the devil's slapping you left and right. God's going to give you the joy of the Spirit. Like Jesus said, he rejoiced in the Spirit. It's not fake it's not you working it up. It's that there's an unseen, there's an unseen source. The world might not even know why you're still laughing. The world, you're even, even your own family might not even comprehend as to why you still have a smile on your face. But it's because they have not tapped in to that unseen source that you've tapped into. Psalm 1 says that the, uh, the righteous are like a palm tree planted by the riverbanks that in every season... No matter if it's a good one or a bad one, in every season, the Bible says they bring forth fruit. And remember, Galatians 5 says one of the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Be filled with that joy right now from the top of your head to the soles of your feet. I curse every form of discouragement the devil's used on you to get you to hang your hands down limp in your feeble knees, to get you to throw in the towel and quit. No, brother and sister, God's going to put a wind behind your spirit today. You're going to laugh again. You're rising up. A righteous man can fall seven times, but he rises up again in Jesus' mighty name. You shall weep no more. The last tear of sorrow and discouragement you ever sowed in defeat will be the last one you ever sow. From today, the only thing that's going to fill your eyes are tears of joy inexpressible and full of glory. Hallelujah. If you receive that for yourself, put this in the comment section. I'm filled with joy. I'm filled with joy. I'm filled with joy. Yeah, let the devil know you tried your best. Your best was not enough. You've done everything. You've thrown everything you know at me. And yet you're going to confuse hell today. Because while they were expecting you to just give it all up, while they were expect while hell was awaiting 
The Bible says the expectation of the wicked was, will perish. The expectation the devil has for you to wither up and come to nothing will perish. In Jesus' mighty name. Listen to this. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. The Greek word is agaliao. Agaliao. It literally means to jump for joy or dance and rejoice with joy. Yes, yeah, that type of joy. Remember, when the presence of God comes, we read it before, he brings fullness of joy. And if you study, when the Ark of the Covenant came back into Jerusalem and David saw it, what did it do to David? He danced before the Lord with all his might. Hallelujah. That's why I said it's not just this little joy where I feel a little better now. It's a joy. That's why the Bible calls it inexpressible. You don't know what to do, so you just dance. Hallelujah. You don't know what to do, so you just jump. You ever see someone win a lottery and they announce them, hey, that was the winning ticket? Do you ever see them? They don't like, that's great. Well, I guess life will be a little easier now. I guess I'll be able to take my family on vacation now. This is great. You don't see that. What do you see? They, they look like lunatics. That's how David saw the presence of God. When the presence of God came back into Jerusalem, he danced before the Lord with all his might to the point where his own wife said, you're an undignified fool. And David said, I'd rather look much more foolish because the presence of God is here. And that presence brought me joy. That presence got me through hard times. That presence has always been a source of strength for me, no matter what I've gone through. He jumped with great joy, to dance with joy. I'm telling you, in the name of Jesus, the Bible says in the book of Psalms that those that put their trust in the name of God, they shall rejoice greatly. They shall rejoice greatly. I prophesy great joy coming back into your home. Not only is it going to hit you and stay with you, it's going to overflow in your home. The atmosphere of your home is going to change because that's what Jesus does. Luke chapter 13, he gets into a synagogue. And he sees a woman there bent over double who, who hadn't walked properly in 18 years. She was bent double, some sort of rheumatoid arthritis. What does Jesus do? This is all under the subheading of Jesus was a joy bomb. You can't say you have Jesus in your heart and be sad or remain sad. I'm not saying you can't have something happen where at first there's a, my, a momentary feeling of discouragement that you got to whip out of. But I'm saying if you are truly a born-again Christian, you can't remain sad. Because the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And you study everywhere Jesus, Jesus went. Luke 13, he finds a woman, 18 years, bent over double, couldn't walk properly for 18 years. You would say that woman, her physical problem wasn't probably her worst problem. If you're physically hurting for 18 years and you couldn't raise yourself up, you were constantly bent over double, the main problem that comes in then is, is you're depressed. I mean, you don't even want to live at that point. I remember when I had OCD. I, you just don't want to live. When you, feel, when you feel weighed down by something physical or mental, you don't even want to live anymore. So this woman, the Pharisees, the whole Sanhedrin, the whole religious population didn't care to help her one bit for 18 years. Jesus walks in, sees her there, commands her to come to him, lays hands on her, makes her straight, heals her body. And what happens? The Bible says in Luke 13, let me read this. Luke 13. And immediately she was made straight and glorified God. In the New Living Translation, it says, And oh, how she praised God. 
And verse 17 says, when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and the whole multitude rejoiced. That same word, agaliao, danced for joy for all the glorious things that were done by him. If you go to a church where it's all it ever is, is people blowing each other's noses and weeping sessions at the altar. I'm not against, look, there's a time where we should weep for the loss. There's a time where the Holy Ghost touches you and it's so overwhelming that it's just tears that come out. But it's like, it's not sad tears, it's happy tears. But there is a time for tears. There is a time to weep for the loss. There is a time to self-examine and, and, you know, get serious where we, we start to um, see if there be any harmful thing in us and we ask the Lord to correct us. There is correction meetings. There's believers meetings where we bring exhortation. There's a time for that. But if every service, and there's a church I know, every service, and they're a popular church, every service is everyone just weeping. Oh, we need you, we need you. It's, first of all, we don't need him. He already is with us. How could you need something you already got? It's not we need you. It's Father, make me aware of the presence I already got. But I digress. All the, all the services is it's constant. Week after week, weeping sessions. People blowing snot at the altar. And it's, it's constantly this pity party for everybody. We're so weak. We need help. We need... Jesus didn't show up and everyone just was in a good mood and now they've been put into a bad mood. When Jesus showed up, he didn't bring people that were having a good time and then just put a wet blanket on the joy and said, hey guys, let's sober up here. Remember, people are going to hell here. No, everywhere Jesus showed up, he had a ministry of joy. Let me make this very clear for you. Joy is the serious business of heaven. I want you to write that in the comment section. Joy is the serious business of heaven. Psalm 4-7 says, You have put joy and gladness in my heart more than in the season where their wine and grain increased. Jesus was a master at uprooting discouragement and depression and planting seeds of joy in people. And the joy of the Lord was not just that he taught people to have a different perspective on their situation, that though the enemy really was destroying their life. Here's another way to look at it. No, the joy was rooted in that Jesus came to change the situations of men by the anointing. No doubt you know Jesus Christ of Nazareth went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil. It's because the power bar, it should come back on. Sorry, guys, just had a little technical issue. Bear with me. If you're just joining me right now, you'd do me a great service if you uh, share, the, share the broadcast. It should be fine. You'd probably just have to, there you go. Praise the Lord. I'm back. Hallelujah. Oh, it went again. Check. Um, oh, it's good. Praise the Lord. You'd do me a great uh, blessing if you'd share the broadcast. Help me get this word out to more people. Uh, so easy on Facebook. Hit that share button. On YouTube, comment, comment, comment. Hit that like button. Let's get this word out. Let's, let's destroy depression in households this week, this weekend. Let's, let's, let's let this word go out and, and, uh, and totally eradicate the devil's trophy of tears of sorrow in people's lives. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter um, 
Luke chapter 5, you see Jesus going to heal a paralytic man that was brought down from his friends from the roof. They sawed a hole in the roof, brought down their friend before Jesus. The Bible says when he did that, they were all amazed and glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we've seen strange things today. So everywhere, essentially what I'm saying is everywhere Jesus presented himself, he immediately caused a revolt against the powers of darkness, resulting in a great flood of joy inundating the place. Like I said before, we have this, sometimes people have this idea that Jesus went into happy places and emptied the happiness and joy level out. That's a religious picture of Jesus, putting a wet blanket on people having a good time. On the contrary, Jesus found people in the worst of situations, and he brought times of refreshing by first changing their situation by his power, and then when that happened, he refreshed the people with times of refreshing by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 3, you see Peter and John going to the uh, gate called Beautiful. And what do we have? They heal the man. They raise him up out of his paralytic state. And he immediately, his ankle bones were strengthened. And he leaped up and he was jumping and praising God. Hallelujah. He was jumping and praising God. So everywhere Jesus went, he overturned the devil's uh, attack or onslaught of depression that he tried to invade people's lives with. And then he infiltrated that place with joy. He always brought, anytime Jesus left the place, he left the place with people jumping and rejoicing. Hallelujah. He left the place where they were gathering demoniacs out of their mind. He left it with them sitting clothing in the right mind, saying, I want to serve you. So this whole religious image of Jesus going around uh, being a, a, a miserable human being with a frown on his face all the time, that's not, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Like I said before, I want you to see Jesus as he really is. Because listen to me, if the devil can get you to think that Jesus is a mad Jesus, and that he was a very serious person. You're going to be that way because we're to imitate Christ. You'll only imitate Christ to the capacity of the knowledge you have of him, inaccuracy. So you can imitate a Christ that's not the real Christ of the Bible. You can imitate your own image of Christ, but it's not the real Christ of the Bible. When Paul said imitate Christ, he's not talking about you imitating a version of Jesus. Imitate the version of Jesus as found in the Bible. I want to imitate Christ. He was happy. I'm going to be happy. He would enter into places where people were downcast in their soul and he turned it all upside down and brought joy and left everyone rejoicing. Then I'm going to, I'm going to imitate Christ through that same ministry of joy. I'm going to, I'm going to be a joy bomb because you see that in the apostles. It didn't stop with them because they understood that we have Jesus on the inside. They enacted the same exact ministry in their own lives. Amen. Number one, Jesus was a joy bomb. You could even say it this way. Jesus was a super spreader of joy. A super spreader of joy. Hallelujah. A super spreader of joy. He, he delighted in finding weeping people and telling them, stop weeping. Study the Gospels. Anytime he saw someone weeping, stop weeping. Because, you know, a lot of people, they quote John 11, the only scripture they know. 
and he wept. Or John 8, 38, and Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. So that's how they see him. He's just weeping. First of all, if you study why he wept, he was weeping in anger. When he got to the tomb of Lazarus and he saw Martha and Mary weeping over their brother, and he said, I've come to raise him from the dead, and they didn't believe him, that's when he wept. And he wasn't weeping because Lazarus died. You know, that really, why would he weep because Lazarus died when he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead? He wasn't weeping because Lazarus died. He was weeping because he was frustrated that Martha and Mary didn't quite believe to the extent of, uh, of what God was able to do in raising Lazarus from the dead. So it was more like, a man, I'm sad that you don't believe me yet. But he wasn't weeping because he was, he was you know, sad about Lazarus going. But he wasn't weeping because of that. He was weeping because he saw unbelief. He wept at unbelief. But some people, that's all the scripture they know of Jesus. Jesus wept. So he was a suffering person always, everywhere he went. He, he's just grieved. No. Anytime he found, when he saw Martha and Mary there, he said, stop weeping. I've come to raise the dead. When he saw the widow of Wayne, he told her, stop weeping. And he raised her son from the dead. When he saw the disciples on the boat as he was walking on the water, intending to pass on by, and they were greatly distressed with great fear. When Jesus saw them in fear, he said, don't be afraid, be of good courage. When Peter, uh, when Paul rather, in Acts chapter 27, was shipwrecked for many days, left for dead at the sea, the Bible says an angel of the Lord appears to Paul and gives him a message. And this was the message. Be of good cheer, Paul, because you're going to appear before Caesar in Rome. And Paul then encouraged the rest of the people and said, be of good cheer. It will be exactly as I've been told. So Jesus was a super spreader of joy. And the apostles, in turn, carrying that same joy, were also cheerful people. Cheerful people. I know you go to Catholic churches and you have St. Peter like this. And St. Paul like this. And St. Andrew like this. But they were not. They were cheerful people. Do you understand that even the martyrs, if you read John Fox's book of martyrs, do you understand that even the martyrs, there's stories of some of them that while they were being burnt at the stake, the people that were surrounding their execution heard laughter coming out from out of the flames. That while they were being cooked, they were laughing uncontrollably. Why? Because of the joy set before them. Hallelujah. Even Jesus, Hebrews 12 says, when he was on the way to the cross, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So number one, Jesus was a joy bomb. Number two, Jesus never sinned. Facts about Jesus you may have never heard about. Jesus never sinned, and he was uncompromisingly righteous. If we read Mark chapter 9, the Bible says that Jesus talking to people in reference to sin, he said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Jesus was hard on sin. He hated sin. He did not, like in most, a lot of North American churches, try to downplay the effect or consequence of sin and avoid even calling sin, sin. He called sin, sin. And he dealt harshly with sin. He was hard on sin, and he offered no grace for unrepented sin. He offered no grace for unrepented sin. How do we know that? Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 11, 
and verse 20. Then Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. Because they didn't repent, he rebuked them. And he said, woe to you, which is death to you, Chorazin, and death to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works were done in you, which were, which were done in you, which had been had they been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. I'm saying to you now, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. So Jesus revisited some of the cities where he had a genuine like move of the Spirit. People got healed. Great miracles broke out. And when he saw none of them repented, none of them turned from sin, he began to rebuke them. Jesus was uncompromisingly righteous. And I know there's a lot of places nowadays, a lot of churches, where they try to make it so that people that are in sin are comfortable. They structure their sermons so that they're the least offensive. I don't want to make you comfortable in sin. I want to offend people in sin. And I want to comfort those that have come out of sin. That's what good preaching should do. Good preaching should comfort those that have come out of sin and it should offend people that are in sinners. Not offend them like you're a jerk or you're an arrogant, uh, egotistical maniac where you make people feel unwelcome. We're not saying they should feel unwelcome, but they certainly should not feel like toleration of sin is something that should be a practice of the believer. Sin should be a revolting thing if you carry Jesus in your heart. Because you study Jesus, he was revolted. He abhorred, he abhorred sinful living. He, he went at great lengths to say to those that are in sin, if your hand is the source of your sin, you're doing things you shouldn't do, cut your hand off. Cut it off. Sever it. Now he's not saying you should like physically go and like biologically mutilate yourself. But what he's saying is anything that's facilitating sin in your life, cut it off. If your foot, where you're going to, is environments conducive for sinful living, cut your foot off. Cut off that thing from your life. He said in Luke chapter 13, let me read this. In Luke 13. And verse 1, there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. And Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you repent. Jesus was hard on sin, and he offered no grace for unrepented sin. I know that's a hard pill to swallow because you have a whole uh, doctrine and demonic doctrine that's circulating churches and uh, a lot of churches in North America where, you know, Jesus covered your past, present, and future sins, and ultimately Jesus already knows you're going to sin, so go ahead and do it. That's why the blood of Jesus was shed. To give us eternal redemption. So since our redemption is eternal, you can keep on living the way you want to do, the way you want to live, because he already covered your future sins. He already covered your future sins. You don't even have to ask him to forgive you. It's already under the blood, baby. You go ahead. I mean, if that's not 
a seducing spirit trying to bring you back into the very vomit that God delivered you from. I don't know what is. The Bible says as a dog returns to his vomit, so a, a fool returns to his sinful lifestyle. That's what the devil uses that type of doctrine to, to, to do, to bring people back, to make people light on sin. Because the lighter you are on sin, the harsher sin will be on you. But the harsher you are on sin, the lighter sin will be on you. You'll find out sin no longer has dominion over you. So this second point of five facts about Jesus you might have overlooked is that Jesus was friend of sinners, but he certainly was not in approval of sin. Because you have people, Jesus was a friend of sinners, brother. I don't know what you're talking about. Jesus, he ate with prostitutes. Yes, but he was not a prostitute. Well, he, he stood with tax collectors. Yes, but he was not in their tax collecting uh, twisted business where they were taking advantage of people. Jesus was a friend of sinner in that he didn't stoop down to their level. He raised people up to his level. Hallelujah. Jesus did not stoop down to the sin level in his association with sinners. He brought them up to his level. You look at Levi, a tax collector. He didn't stay a tax collector. He was lifted up to be an apostle. Zacchaeus didn't stay a tax collector. He, re he repaid everything he owed. And then who knows what came of Zacchaeus' life, but I'm sure it was good. So we have to remove this image of Jesus that some modern-day preaching has formed in people's lives that he's okay. And they, they don't even call it sin. They call it quirks, mistakes. We all make failures. They don't even call it sin. We still call sin, sin, because the Bible hasn't changed. And let me make this clear to you. Holiness is still popular in heaven regardless of it being popular on earth. And I'm not a citizen of this earth. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm not trying to blend in with this earth. I'm trying to blend in with heaven. I'm not trying to be culturally accepted here. I want to be culturally accepted there in heaven. And holiness is still popular in heaven. Write that down in the com comment section. Holiness is still popular in heaven. Why is God so harsh on sin? And why would Jesus be so harsh on sin? Because Jesus understands. And God understood this and understands this. Sin is obedience. Get this. I'm going to make this clear to you as to why God's so harsh on sin. Where he's not like, hey, you know, we're all trying to get better. You know, we all, how many know we all sin in different ways? Amen. You don't read that in the apostles' writings. You don't, you don't read, we all sin in different ways. You read, he that sins is of the devil. And he that deliberately sin after he's come to the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for that man's sin. It, it's, it, it, there's this harsh, offensive attitude that the Bible has against sin. Why? Because sin is obedience to the devil's law of sin and death. 
That's what sin is. Essentially, it's obedience to the devil's law. And just like God rewards people based on obedience to his word, the devil rewards obedience to his perverted laws. So the devil has to operate by that. He can't, he can't bring consequences to you for the actions that you didn't perform. He can only bring the consequences to the actions that you do perform. So he lures people into a life of sin so that he can put the baggage on people that sin brings. And sin has always carried the same wage. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin, still in 2023, is still death. The Bible says the way of the sinner is hard. So the, de the way the devil brings hardship on people and the way he gets people to die spiritually and also decay physically because sin brings sickness. Unrepented sin brings sickness. And that's not God cursing you. If you sleep around with enough people, guess what's going to happen? You're going to catch an STD. That's just how it is. Sin brings its own consequence. If you, if you drink enough, your liver's going to corrode. Cirrhosis of corrode. Your, your liver's going to have cirrhosis of the liver. If you, have, if you are a glutton long enough, guess what's going to happen? Your intestinal tract, your pancreas, you're going to develop a type 2. It, it, sin carries its own consequence. And so the way the devil brings the consequence on people, he can't just superimpose that consequence on you without your cooperation. He has to get you to cooperate with his unholy law, and in so doing, he, he brings his reward. That's why I've always said this. Sin, if it's, if it's consequence, if it's reward, if it's wages were paid the instance that you perform that act, how many people would actually sin? If sin paid its wages on sight, how many people would sin? Imagine if you did something, you thought an unholy thought, and you just dropped dead. People would deal with sin much more differently. Any preaching that makes sin tolerable, any preaching that makes you comfortable in sin, any preaching that would... Make the effect of sin less serious is a preaching, a doctrine, sermon that was birthed in hell and falls under the category of end-time doctrines of demons. Jesus never sinned, and Jesus offered no grace for unrepented sin. Number three, number three fact about Jesus that you may not have ever heard of, you may have overlooked, is Jesus never courted any man's favor. Turn with me to Mark chapter 12. This one might be my favorite for today. Jesus never courted any man's favor. What do I mean by that? Mark chapter 12, and beginning with verse 13, then some, then some came to him from the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you care about no one. For you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. I used to read that and I'd wonder, what do you mean care about no one? I thought Jesus cared about me. I thought Jesus cared about people. What do you mean cares about no one? Well, I realized that the Bible, if you study the Greek, it actually means he courted no man's favor. What does that mean? He didn't do anything to make people like him. 
His motive in doing in healing people was not to get people to like him. His motive in healing people, people was because he had a hatred for the devil's work and he came to destroy the works of the devil and he had compassion for people. Whether you like, he healed 10 lepers. Only one came back to give glory to him. But the other, ten, the other nine got healed. He never courted any man's favor. He never spoke anything or did anything with the effort or with the idea in mind that he wanted to be liked by people. Jesus had, get this, Jesus had a spirit of I don't care. Jesus had a spirit of I don't care. That's not to say he didn't care about people. He had compassion for the people. But if you, it's like people that, that say, I don't believe in God. Great. He's still God. Do you think God's in heaven? Do you think Jesus is in heaven and you're worrying about, oh, he, they don't, he doesn't believe in me. <laughs> he, he doesn't believe in me. Angels, we got to do something. He doesn't believe in me. That, that hurts. Of course it hurts in the sense that he wants them saved. But he's going to, I don't, it's like that, it's like that man in 2 Kings chapter 7 that said, even if the Lord should open up the treasures in heaven, the floodgates of heaven, such a thing will not, will not happen. God still did the miracle. The floodgates were, of heaven were open and the economy in one day was reversed back to what it was before. Supernaturally by the hand of God. The man, the economist who gave the word of even if God, like I don't believe God can do that. He got to see it. He didn't partake of it or taste of it. But God's work will, God's word will work whether someone believes it or not. God's plans are going to prevail on the earth. Hallelujah. The only thing is it works only for those that believe. But nonetheless, God's word is working. Your faith gets you to tie on for it to work for you. But whether you believe it or not, God is working things on the earth. It's to your advantage that you believe. So Jesus never did anything to get people to like him. He had a spirit of I don't care. Like I said before, you have people that say, I don't believe in God. God doesn't exist. Okay. Okay. He's, he, he, he still exists. <laughs> he's still in heaven and he's still going to do what he needs to do. He sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. So Jesus wasn't like, um, um, what do you say? He wasn't watering down his sermons because he thought maybe, you know, if I said this, I don't know how it's going to come off. I don't know if people are really, that might hurt some people. And you know what? I'm bringing this up because many ministry t ministries today and a lot of preachers today are crowd chasers. They're crowd chasers. John 12, 42 says that they love the praise of men more than they love the praise from God. There are people like that. Applause lovers. Fame adorers. They say things because they know it's going to get a cheer from the crowd, but it's not even biblically true. Jesus never watered down his theology and his speaking no matter how... Think of how many times he said things that actually damaged his reputation. Whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood has life in him. If you don't feed off my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no life in you. Uh, this guy is crazy. And John 6 says, many left him from that day onward. And he wasn't like, no, don't leave. Please don't leave. Come back. Uh, I can change. 
He didn't, he didn't change his thought. He didn't change his words. He turned to the disciples and said, you going to leave too? <laughs> he didn't even care if the disciples left. You going to leave too? Because I can restart this thing. And they, they understood. They had a little more sense. Where can we go? You hold the, the words of eternal life. But you have a lot of preaching today. Ah, we don't talk about tongues because tongues makes people uncomfortable. And in doing so, you know, we've been on a streak recently. More people are coming back after the pandemic and we don't want to put them. Let's not expose them to that. All right. Well, you just said, I don't want to build with God. And when God is no longer building that thing, guess what happens? The builders build in vain. We don't lower our thermometer in church to suit the lukewarm. Because even the lukewarm, first of all, they don't even want to be in church in the first place. They're not there on Sunday morning because they want to be there and they're come, they come with expectation. They're singing hymns in the car with their children and saying, kids, what are you believing God for today? What are you believing God for, Judah? They're, they're not thinking like that. They're, oh, what time does this thing end again? Because we have mimosas at 1 p.m. We have a brunch with, you know, sister so-and-so. and, -so and we, we got, they're, they're like planning their champagne and orange drinks after service. They're not even there for... Because they want to be there, they're there because they've been doing it. It's a Sunday ritual. And I've got, you know, my friends are there. Sister Sally, he's actually taking, uh, they're, they're doing registration for the men's party this weekend. So I got to be there. I got to put my name in. So why, why lower the bar to suit people that don't want to be there? And in so doing, the people that actually want to come there, they come and they're like, that's it. People that are actually looking for truth. They want a power encounter. And they come, that's it. I was really hoping for more. And they could have got the more had you put your big boy pants on and actually delivered the truth. And not lowered the bar. Just so that we can, we can uh, make sure that there's not a church split. If the church splits because you started preaching the word, let it split. Our church in Montreal, Canada... Uh, over the last couple of years, had, had a huge divide. We went from 330 people down to like 120 people because of the stance my pastor took and because of the strong word of holiness that we have at our church. A lot of people left. Well, guess what now? You never serve God at a loss. Now, last Sunday, I talked to my pastor. We had 805 people in the building. We went from 300 to 350 tops on Easter to, we took a strong stance, a lot of people left, and guess what? Way more people came in. And now, we just built a sanctuary that seats 750 people, and it's already too small. It's already too small. We have to look for bigger buildings now. You never, the Bible says the uncompromisingly righteous will be rewarded. Hallelujah. You don't forfeit your reward by being uncompromisingly righteous. You forfeit your reward when you're trying to court every man's favor. Jesus never courted any man's favor. That's not to say he was insensitive. That's not to say he was compassionless towards men. The Bible says he was moved with the feelings of our infirmities. But the thing is, is he never said anything. He never lowered his words or tried to like mince his words so as to make people like him. And I really believe that God's raising up a, a, a new generation of preachers that are going to be like that. 
Not hypocrites. You know, the only people Jesus had a problem with were the, the Pharisees, the religious people who minced their words and didn't back the words up with action. He said, you know the scriptures. And, sorry, rather, he said, you know not the scriptures, neither yet the power of God. And you're depriving the key of knowledge to other people who want to enter into the kingdom. You're holding it back from them because you yourselves don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And then he moves on, Matthew 23. He, he like lays into the Pharisees. You hypocrites, you brood of vipers. Not only did Jesus not mince his words, he had very hard words to speak against people that were holding back the move of God in their churches, in their synagogues, and in their region. So Jesus never courted any man's favor. One thing Jesus never did was he never lobbied around people hoping that they would give to his ministry, hoping that they would do something nice for him. He didn't treat people differently based on what they could do for him. Hallelujah. He treated people equally. So he told the disciples, when you go, don't greet anyone along the way. That wasn't being, un like being polite towards people. That's saying, don't greet anyone, meaning don't lobby around people trying to tell them what you're about to do. You know, we're going out to the missions field now. Do you think you can like uh, cough up a few dollars? We're really believing God for this amount of money to come in. He said, don't lobby around people. Go and do what I told you to do and you'll never lack anything. Jesus was the same way. He didn't, whether you gave to his ministry or not, it didn't matter. Quit lobbying around people you think can help you. Don't be a people user. Be kind to everyone and do things that secure God's favor and then God will divinely connect you with the right people. Amen. Number four, facts about Jesus. Who he is, sometimes overlooked. Jesus was not poor. This is a huge one. Jesus' fact. Some, uh, one of the major facts that is oftentimes, not only is it overlooked, it's spoken against. How many times have you heard in church growing up, Jesus was poor? I'm going to show you that Jesus was not poor. Luke chapter 8, Jesus was not poor. Luke chapter 8, because a lot of times you hear people talk about how, you know, Jesus, you know, the Bible says the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. How many of you know that Jesus had, uh, he didn't have a home to sleep in. He didn't have a bucket to pee in. He, he was as poor as Job's turkey, but bless God, he still did what he was called to do. Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Now it came to pass afterward, he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom he cast out seven demons. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their own substance. Who provided for him. Jesus had partners in his ministry. The Bible says he was going everywhere, teaching, preaching, and bringing the good news of the, the gospel to people, and 12 were with him. He had the 12 disciples, and then it says he had other women that traveled with him too. He had a posse that he traveled with. Now, I'm starting to travel with more people because the demands of the ministry are growing, and so I know what it costs to travel with, uh, with just one or two people, let alone a group of 12 disciples and possibly some of their families and kids. 
And the Bible says in Luke chapter 22, when Jesus asked the disciples, when I sent you guys out without purse, without any script, without any money bags, did you guys lack anything? When we were on the road, did you ever lack anything? And they all unequivocally responded, we didn't lack anything. They never lacked. So not only was Jesus not poor, Jesus had an abundance. So much so, he was able to pay 12 full-time staff in his ministry. That's huge. 12 full-time staff that relied upon and depended upon his provision. What they were able to pull. They were pulling their resources from what the ministry was making. So not only was Jesus not poor, Jesus had an abundance, and get this, he had a treasurer that guarded this abundance, or at least was supposed to guard it. John chapter 12, John chapter 12, and verse 5 and 6, listen to this. John 12, 5 and 6. Jesus had a treasurer. Poor people don't have treasurers. You don't see homeless people in major cities with their accountant having a meeting as to how they're going to allocate certain resources this week and what stocks they should invest in. The Bible says in verse 5, why, the, why Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii, which I will have you note that that's one full year's wage, one perfume that costs a salary for an entire year. So we want to translate that to this year. What's the average in Montreal? Average salary for a full-time person would probably be, I don't know, $60,000, $50,000 a year. Well, imagine a, a perfume that costs $50,000 a year. Uh, $50,000. Imagine a perfume that cost you $50,000 to buy. That was cracked and poured out on the feet of Jesus. And Judas, who is the traitor, is the only one that took offense to it. And he said, this could have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. Verse 6, this he said, not because he cared for the poor, because he didn't, but because he was a thief and he was in charge on the money box. He was in charge over the money box, the treasury. And he used to take what was put in it. He was a thief. Now get this. If you had a bank account, with $61 in it, and someone took $15 from you, so that now you had $46 in your bank account, you would know it. You would pull up Bank of America, and what, $46, what, what happened? Did I pay a bill? You'd go in, oh, well, I'm getting my money stolen here, because I had $61, and now I have $46. If you had $1.3 billion in your bank account, and someone, a $46 transaction went through, someone stole $46 from you, and you weren't able to locate it. Well, first of all, you wouldn't even find it. You wouldn't even care about it. If you had $1.3 billion in your bank account, and someone took $46 away, you wouldn't even notice if it was gone. You wouldn't, you wouldn't even be able to trace where it came or left. It, 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 it wouldn't matter as much because of the amount that you had. So the fact that Jesus had a treasury... And Judas was stealing from that treasury and nobody noticed shows you that he didn't just have a little bit of money hanging around. 
And they were always scraping the bottle of the barrel, hoping to get through uh, and hoping they had enough to make it through this week's expenses for the ministry. And he had to actually sit down Peter, James, and John and say, guys, this week I'm not going to be able to pay you. Um, we're not going to be able to eat. We're going on a mandatory fast this week. No. Every single time that he had to buy bread for his disciples, pay out, whatever, whatever he had to do to keep the disciples happy. Every single time they had to pay off an expense for the ministry. If they stayed in a hotel, if they stayed at someone's house, whatever it was, there was always more than enough. Why? Because remember, Jesus is El Shaddai of the Old Testament in flesh. The God of more than enough carried an overflow. So the whole concept that Jesus was this poor guy with wretched, ripped up clothing, going around with his head stooped down, with his hands out, hoping someone would give to his ministry so he can continue on. You know how many times I get irritated when I hear uh, preachers or even churches say, um, you know, we, brothers, we have a great need that's coming for the ministry, and if you guys don't give, we're not going to be able to do it. Well, if they don't give and you're not able to do it, then that means God didn't ordain it. Because when God ordains something, it's like a magnet. It just pulls provision in. And we're to be Christ-like. And you don't see Jesus highlighting his needs in ministry, telling the people what he needed so he can get through this week. And then trying to like skiff an offering out of people. What do you see? You see him multiplying bread and fish and feeding 5,000 men. You see him telling Peter, hey, they want the temple tax from us? Get a, a, a fishing rod, go fish. The first thing that pops up, take its mouth, open it up. There's going to be a gold coin that'll be sufficient to pay off taxes, not only for myself, but for you. Paid a whole uh, year's tax for Peter and for Jesus, the temple tax, in one miracle of provision. You don't see him in a deficit. You see him constantly rising up through miraculous provision, meeting the needs of his generation, people that were around him. Hallelujah. What does poor mean? Destitute, inferior, impoverished, feeble, pitiful, lacking, insufficient. Do you see Jesus as lacking, insufficient? Now, I'm not saying Jesus lived a, an extravagant lifestyle where he had three Maseratis. First of all, he didn't have any Maserati. There was no cars. But like where he had you know, a fleet of horses and 17 different boats that he would have on. You don't see him living an extravagant lifestyle just to shove it in the face of the people. Because you have that end of the spectrum. You have, you have some real clowns in ministry where the prosperity is all about what I've got. It's all about what I have, what I, what, what I can showcase to others. See this watch? This watch is worth more than this whole row. What you guys make in a year. Yeah, praise God. You're, in, you're not bright. See my house? Nobody's got a bigger house than I do. I got the biggest house in all the world. Yeah, congratulations. Jesus is real proud of you that you have the biggest house in all the world. I'm not against having the biggest house in all the world, and I'm not against having Rolex and... I'm not against it. It's all very nice. But you, 
I'm, what I'm saying is that Jesus was not poor, but also on the opposite end, he wasn't some extravagant human being that was flashing his prosperity around poor people to just showcase himself. He wasn't flaunting his lifestyle. He certainly wasn't ashamed of it, but he wasn't flaunting it. And you have some people, that's what they do. They, they believe in God for prosperity so that they can one-up everybody else. And that's where the prosperity message gets a bad name from. Because it's rooted in covetousness rather than rooted in the Great Commission. Prosperity is not how much can I have so I can flaunt it before others. Prosperity is how much can God empower me so that I can give more to meet the needs of my generation. Not how much do I have. How much can I give? Hallelujah. That's what I'm believing God for. And that's what you see Jesus. Jesus was addicted to giving to the poor. The Bible says, when Jesus, in John 13, he told Judas, uh, what you do, do it quickly. The disciples thought that he told Judas to go and give something to the poor because he would customarily do it. Jesus was always giving. He was always blessing. When they were in a wilderness and had no food, he made sure everyone had food to eat. Hallelujah. He was conscious of the needs of others and wasn't a needy, me, me, me type of mentality. So that's that extreme. But then there's the other extreme. Like I said, this point, Jesus was not poor. Why do they say Jesus was poor? Well, one, he was born in a manger. Jesus wasn't born in a hotel, amen. Jesus wasn't born in a hospital. Jesus didn't even, wasn't even born in a motel sick. Oh, hallelujah. He was born in a manger. Seriously? Read the story. It wasn't because Joseph didn't have money to get a hotel. There was no room in any place in Bethlehem because there was the census. So everyone from Bethlehem, it's like I was in, uh, I was just in uh, Lewisburg, North Carolina. And I waited a little long to book my hotel room. Thank God he made a way and I didn't have to sleep in a manger. But I waited a little long to book my hotel room. I didn't know there was like um, U.S. soccer, girls soccer tournament, like U.S. wide soccer girls tournament that same weekend. And so when I went to look, I couldn't find any hotel rooms available because there was like thousands of people coming into Lewisburg, North Carolina and Raleigh area where all the hotels were sold out. Finally, I found one. Praise God. I didn't have to sleep, like I said, in my car or something or in a manger. I found one. But that's exactly what happened at Bethlehem. There was a major event. The census was taking place. And so everyone from Bethlehem came back. It was a family reunion. Joseph had his family there. I'm sure they, you know. But there was no room for them in any hotel. There was no room for them, in, in, not even in his relative homes. And so he had to sleep in a manger. It's not because they didn't have money to buy a hotel. They didn't, there was no availability. There was no vacancy. Number two, they always say, you know, Jesus had no head to put his, no, no pillow to put his head on. He had no place to lay his head. Foxes have dens and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus wasn't saying, I don't have a home. I'm homeless. It's been tough. You know, I sleep on a rock every night. Jesus was saying, if you want to follow me, you got to count the cost because I travel a lot and I'm in a different place nearly every single day, which is true. He was in Galilee, then he went to Capernaum, then he went to 
uh, Caesarea Philippi, then he comes to Jerusalem, then he goes to Bethsaida, then he goes to Capernaum. Then he, he was always traveling. And one person said, hey, I want to follow you. He said, hey, buddy, I don't know if you got what it takes. Because foxes have dens. If you think we're just going to stay in one place and live in a den, it ain't going to happen. Birds have nests. They always come back to the same home. I can tell you from my own life, I live like that. I'm like a nomad. I, I, this year we traveled more than any other year combined. I'm in a new, new place every single weekend, pretty much. And next year it's only picking up even more. And there are times where it's like you'd love to be at home and, you know, grill on your own barbecue and cook at your own stove and be around your, your family and with a television and just watch a nice Christmas movie. There's times where you want to do that, but you're on the road constantly. And I'm not complaining in the least. I am not. I'm, I'm overjoyed to do what the Lord's called me to do. But that's what Jesus was highlighting, is that you don't, you're not going to have a den to come back to. You're going to have to kiss your parents goodbye. You're not going to have a... a, a a nest to come back to every night. We're always on the go. Are you ready to count that cost and pay it to follow me? It wasn't saying I don't have a home. The Bible makes it clear he had a home. John chapter 1. They said, Lord, where are you staying? And he said, come and see. And they went to the place where he was living, where he had his own, his own rented place. Jesus had a house. He lived he, he had a house. He lived in his own quarters. Whenever he was back in town, that's where he stayed. Hallelujah. And you have people, Jesus was so poor, he had to borrow a tomb. Really? He didn't borrow a tomb because he couldn't pay for a tomb. He borrowed a tomb, A, to fulfill Bible prophecy, because the Bible says he would, he would, uh, he would borrow a tomb. And then secondly, he borrowed the tomb because he, didn't, he knew he wasn't going to stay there more than three days. You don't buy something that you're going to use for three days. If I'm going to go on, a, on the road and I need a, like a telephoto lens that normally costs $15,000 and I'm only going to use it for two days, I'm not going to pay $15,000 to use it for two days. I'll rent it for maybe $500 a day or you know, $200 a day and I'll use it for those two days. It's a bad investment to... To pay the 15000 That's what Jesus did. He, he's a good Jewish man. He knew not to invest in a tomb. He borrowed a tomb because he knew he wasn't going to stay there. That certainly was not an illustration of his financial level that he was at. So you have a lot of people that are anti-prosperity use the argument that Jesus was poor, but he was not. Matter of fact, the very first miracle God did for Jesus and his family in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11 is he caused wise men to come from the east, open up their treasuries, and they provided for him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The very first miracle God did for Jesus and his family was a, a financial miracle. And scholars believe that that one financial miracle actually kept them for those years that he spent in Egypt while he was avoiding Herod, because Herod was out killing every child under two, looking for Jesus to kill him, to harm the child. And so scholars believe that that one miracle of provision lasted them for those years that he was sojourning in Egypt. Praise God. Praise the Lord. So in summary, Jesus was not poor. As a child, he received gifts of gold. Jesus had a financial ministry partnership that supported him. Three, the Bible indicates Jesus had a home. Four, Jesus constantly supernaturally met the needs of people around him. 
Five, Jesus constantly was assisting the poor on a regular basis. Six, Jesus never called himself poor. I love this one. Jesus never called himself poor. He said, when they criticized the woman for giving that offering, he said, the poor you always have with you, but me you do not always have. Jesus made a distinguishing, a, distinguish, uh, a distinction between him and poor people. Jesus made a distinction between him and poor people. He said, the poor you always have with you, but me you do not always have. He didn't say, we're all poor. What's the difference between giving it to me or giving it to someone else? I'm poor, they're poor. He said, yeah, the poor you always have with you, but me you do not always have. There was a distinction. There was a line of demarcation between him and poor people, signifying that Jesus did not consider himself poor. Six, Jesus was not bothered when a year's wage costing perfume was used to anoint his feet. If he was poor, he would have got ticked off. He would have said, why didn't you give that to me? I could have sold it. It would have supported me for another month. And then finally, the disciples' testimony in Luke 22, we never lacked any, anything, shows that Jesus, Jesus was not poor. Hallelujah. Number five, I finish with this. Five Bible facts about Jesus that you may, not, you may have overlooked or may never have even heard about. Number five is Jesus was a faith preacher. Jesus was a faith person. Jesus never discouraged anybody. He never told people to be realistic. He never told people to use a little wisdom. I know what God's word says, but you need to use a little wisdom. Jesus was a faith infuser. Jesus was word of faith. I know there's this whole attack against word of faith preaching, First of all, Paul says, this is the word of faith which we preach. Paul was a word of faith preacher, and Jesus was a word of faith preacher. Well, how do I know that? Mark eleven twenty three. 23. If you have faith in God, you will say to this mountain, be uprooted and cast into the sea. And if you don't doubt in your heart, but believe that those things which you say will come to pass, you will have what you say. Mark 9, 23. If I can, all things are possible to him that believes. Matthew 17, 21, the Bible says, if you have faith, you will say to this mountain, be moved from here to there, and nothing will be impossible to those that believe. Hallelujah. Jesus always brought a different perspective on people's situation that may have originally seemed impossible, but when Jesus offered his perspective, it lifted people's spirits to not only see the thing as possible, but to see it as like laughable in comparison to God's ability. In Jairus' situation, Mark 5, he enters into the house of Jairus and they're all weeping and wailing over the child. And what does Jesus do? The woman, the daughter, the girl, she's just sleeping. And they laughed at him. He, she's not sleeping, she's dead. But he put them all outside. What does that show you? Jesus saw, it's not, Jesus knew she was dead. But Jesus said, I came to wake her up as if she was sleeping. My resurrection power is more than enough to wake this girl up from death. And it's going to be as if she wakes up from a deep sleep. He offered a different perspective. He always minimized, minimized the severity of people's situations as he compared it with his great power. He minimized. The devil wants to maximize the severity of the thing you're dealing with and then minimize God's power. Jesus always minimized the devil's power and maximized. It, he put God's power under a microscope so you can see the fullness of it. Hallelujah. 
Jesus was a faith guy. He taught faith strong. He left no room for uncertainty. He constantly called people to believe in him. Hey, believe in me. Come to me. Those that are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Believe on me. Out of your belly will flow a river of living water. Yeah, I know what you're going through. Yeah, I've been moved with the feelings of what you're feeling. But I'm telling you, all things are possible if you'll believe on me. He kept preaching the faith perspective to people. He never condemned faith. He never condemned people's optimism in God's power. He always condemned unbelief and doubt and skepticism. He always, he, he commended faith and he lifted up people's faith. Hallelujah. I'm telling you in the name of Jesus, even now this word is lifting up your faith today. Some of you have been down. Some of you got the wind knocked out of you. But today, the wind of God is coming alive in you. And your faith is being lifted. People get face lifts to correct any wrinkles. God's going to faith lift you today and correct any wrinkles that doubt may have brought on your life. In Jesus' mighty name. In the name of Jesus. Diane, Ron, I, I speak faith in your heart right now. The spirit of faith. As you have heard, so shall you speak, and as you have spoken, so shall it come to pass. In Jesus' name, Laura, John, Joanne, Sylvia, Lauren, in the name of Jesus, Crystal, I speak the, as, as the word of God has gone into your heart, faith generated. Faith is being generated in your spirit. That whatever you looked at and saw as impossible will be seen as laughable from today onward. In Jesus' mighty name. Just like Moses saw the Red Sea as impossible. But then when it opened, they all laughed in peace as they walked through the Red Sea as on dry ground. In Jesus' mighty name. What was seen as impossible will be seen as laughable. What was seen as unlikely will not only come to pass. You know, People have always said faith doesn't just make uh, faith. Sorry, faith doesn't make things easy. Faith makes things possible. I don't believe that. Faith makes things easy too. Faith greases life. That's why you see Jesus's life was like he had CLR on. It's like he he was totally everything he did. It flowed. Faith puts you in the flow of the Holy Ghost, where what is difficult for others, it, there's a grease. That makes it effortless for you. Hallelujah. What is hard to believe for in others is easy for you to believe. That's what Caleb and Joshua had. Everyone else said, we're not able. We're, we're going to be food for those giants. We can never get the land. They all spoke the language of unbelief. But Joshua and Caleb spoke the language of faith. We are able we will by all means take possession of the land. Paul spoke the language of faith. He said, I'm convinced neither death, life, angel, principality, power, things in heaven, things on earth. No, nothing will separate me from the love of Christ or the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nay, in persecution, in famine, in sword, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who gives us strength. Hallelujah. That's the spirit of faith. Jesus had a spirit of faith. That's why he looked to a fig tree that didn't bring forth fruit. And he said, I curse you. 
And he didn't stay there and just pray the whole night. Father, I just pray this curse will work. He cursed it and he walked away. And when he got around the next day, miraculously the thing was cursed and it withered up from the root. That's what the spirit of faith does in you. It, it rises up in people to curse the things that aren't producing Bible fruit so that they wither up and then speak blessing on the things that you desire to grow in your life. You curse sickness by the spirit of faith, just like Jesus cursed the fig tree and the thing withers up. You don't pray about it after. You curse it and then you believe that God is working it out. You believe that God, his unseen hand is making things happen for you. What no seen hand can make happen for you. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I, I feel the spirit of faith right now rising up in people. I sense it bubbling up. I sense that run through a troop and leap over a wall anointing coming on some of you today. Why so downcast, oh my soul? Hope in God. Believe in God. You think that that sickness has got God backed up into a corner? Heck no. Heck no. This is an easy thing in the eyes of God. That's what faith does. It makes you realize it's an easy thing in the hands of God. There ain't no mountain he can't flat it. There ain't no wall he can't take down. There ain't no fiery dart of the devil that the shield of faith can't quench. There ain't no Red Sea God can't part. There ain't no situation that God can't reverse. There is nothing the devil has done to you or your family that God can't do something about it today. That was the message of Jesus. He went and told the people that were in the worst of the worst of situations, don't be afraid, be of good cheer. I've come to overcome these things. I've come to destroy the works of the devil. I've come to make every crooked place straight, every rough path smooth. I've come to remove that burden by the anointing and fill you with a joy, a joy That'll, that, that, that'll become your strength from today onward. Hallelujah. 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 Praise the Lord. Jesus was a faith preacher. So the five facts about Jesus that you may have never heard of is one, Jesus was a joy bomb, a super spreader of joy everywhere he went. Two, he never sinned and he was uncompromisingly righteous. Three, he never courted any man's favor. He didn't do things to get people to like him. He did what he did, and whether people liked him or not was their own, was their own uh, problem. Number four, Jesus wasn't poor. He was very rich, and he met people's needs. And number five, Jesus was a faith preacher. Because you go to some churches today, faith is not talked about the way it's talked about in the Bible. How many of you are going through a hard time? I just want to let you know that, you know, in this world, there'll be trial and tribulation. So this is something you should expect. You know, we're not going to get heaven till heaven comes. So it's unlikely and unrealistic. Some people are lucky. Where, where is lucky in the Bible? Where is lucky in the Bible? Where is uh, coincidence in the Bible? Do you know there's no Hebrew word for lucky or coincidence? There's no lucky. There's no coincidence. There is none of that. 
There's either there's people who by faith have put a demand on God's power and bring to bring those things in their life. And then there's people who just either don't know about God's power and God's word or they don't believe it. But that that's that's the the distinction. That's the line of demarcation. There's no lucky. You have people. Some people are more blessed than others. We don't know why. God has sovereignty in this and whom he chooses is who will get blessed and some people are destined for sickness and tragedy and misery and failure and you just got to make do with what you've got. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not, that's not how Jesus taught things. That's not how he taught faith. Jesus taught faith as something that we use to partner with God to bring about different outcomes in our life. He didn't teach faith from the perspective of whatever God wants, that's what's going to happen. Jesus taught faith from study this book and what you see written down in there, you can put a demand on that. Ask God in the name of Jesus and the Father, whatever you ask in my name, he'll give to you so that your joy may be made full. Jesus was a faith Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise God. I hope this broadcast helped you today. Some of you might have to go back and rewatch um, from the beginning. I think it'd be worth doing it. If you haven't already liked this on YouTube, hit the like button and click the share button on Facebook. Let's help me get this, more, uh, this broadcast out to more people. I love you guys very much. Let me pray for you right now. In Jesus' name, I thank you that everyone watching right now has gone to a whole new level. Because the Bible says we could only imitate you to the level of revelation of, of uh, who you are to be from the Word of God. And so, Lord, as we've come to a deeper understanding of who you are, as we've come to see Jesus as he really is from this book, I thank you, Father, that it's leading to a change of level in each and every individual's lives, of those watching now and on the replay. Thank you, Lord, that today's the lowest we're ever going to be. Thank you that we're moving forward and that we're moving upward. Thank you that we're expanding to the left and expanding to the right. Thank you, Lord, that as we carry not just a picture of the Jesus of the Bible, but a keen awareness of that Jesus alive on the inside of us, that it's going to change our conduct. Thank you, Father, that by faith... Our conduct is being changed today. By faith, our speech is being changed today. By faith, our love, our purity, and our ability to dominate in this world is being changed. Thank you, Father, that today is the lowest we'll ever be. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody says, amen. Amen. I love you guys very much. Uh, if you'd like to... First of all, if you've not given your life to Jesus, you're watching right now, you need to do that right now. Jesus is real. Jesus is alive. Jesus is coming back soon. The Bible says he's coming back only for one person. Not black, not white, not Arab, not Asian. He's coming back for one person. Those who are in Christ. The Bible says that the way we get right with God and have peace with God is by faith. Faith in what? Faith in that God sent Jesus, putting on human flesh to die the death of a sinner. In so doing, taking upon himself our guilt, our penalty for sin. And all the record of our wrongdoing was laid on Jesus. The Bible says 
that God laid on Jesus all of our guilt and sin, and it pleased God to crush Jesus. Why? For the joy set before him. What was that joy? It was you watching right now, where you'd hear this message, that Jesus is not some historical figure who just was a love enthusiast and did a lot of nice things, and he was a good guy. He made some prophecies. They came to pass, and that's about it. Jesus is the Son of God. I go back to that scripture I opened up with. Who do men say that I am? Some say John the Baptist. Some say he's a teacher. Some say he was a philosopher. doesn't matter what other people think about Jesus. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because at the end of time, it is appointed unto men to die once, and then comes the judgment. And in that judgment, God's not going to ask you, how much money did you make? How much ed education did you get to? What level of academia did you reach? How many cars did you have? How much money did you give to the church? How many times did you go to church? How many times did you go to a Christmas service? He's not going to ask that. He's going to ask one thing. What did you do with my son? And in asking that, what he's really asking is, did you put your faith in what he did at that cross at Calvary? Jesus died a sinner's death, taking upon himself our record of guilt and wrongdoing so that we can receive the king's life. I heard Charles Spurgeon say it like this. Jesus stood before God like us, sinners, depraved, wretched, so that we can stand before God like Jesus, so that we can stand before him without any sense of inferiority, condemnation, or guilt, but that we can have peace with God through the blood of Jesus, justified. What does that mean? Just if I'd never sinned. Hallelujah. A brand new slate, a clean record. Start new today. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. If you're watching right now, you've never done that, pray this with me. If you have done that, but you want to recommit your life to Jesus, you're saying, today, I'm getting back on track. I've let my foot off the, pillow, pe the pedal. I've not quite put uh, wood in my fire, and I've become lukewarm. I don't live, I'm not living the way I used to live. I, I sense that there's indifference in me, but I want God to douse me in the kerosene of his spirit and set me ablaze so that I can live for him on fire and radical to the end, then recommit your life to Christ today. Pray this with me. Say, Father, in Jesus' name, I believe that you raised Jesus from the dead, and I confess Jesus is Lord of my life. Forgive me of my sin. I repent. I renounce this world. I renounce the devil. I receive Jesus Christ. Fill me with your spirit. Where I was weak, make me strong. In Jesus' name, I am saved. I am healed. I am whole. And I'm never looking back. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with me, I want you to go on my website, salvationnow.ca. The first link that pops up is I just got saved. Click that. Fill it out. Get that information to me. I want to send something to you free of charge, a Bible, some reading material as a way of welcoming you into the family of God. And I want to help you out, get you started in this new adventure with Christ. Get some material into your hands. It's going to greatly help you and assist you. Do that right now, salvationnow.ca. First link, I just got saved. Click that out. I want you to succeed in this new walk with Jesus Christ. Stay connected with us by visiting us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching at TJ Malkanji or visit us online 
www.salvationnow.ca. God bless you, and until next time.